our readings, Anne. Well, good morning, everyone. A mom of the girls I, uh, girl I went to youth group with arrives home from the morning school drop-off, and she cries. She pours herself another drink in the kitchen, having driven her kids to school again well over the legal limit. How did it ever come to this? A work colleague expresses regret to me over what he wrote in his resignation letter last night, filled with expletives, criticisms, and blame. He wonders out loud where he'll find a job next without a referee. How did it ever come to this? An extended relative married with two daughters puts every last cent of his family savings through the pokies, ending his marriage, losing his kids, and now needing to hand over control of his future to a family guardianship. How did it ever come to this? A university student I know helps her parents set up a family business and spends the next 12 months siphoning over $100,000 for mum and dad. How did it ever come to this? A pastor I worked alongside at a church who told us that he shifted his views about biblical sexuality, resigns from his role, admitting he lied in his initial job interview. Two years later, he marries the husband of one of the congregation members. How did it ever come to this? A high school student shares with me about the first time his friend gave him pot to smoke. Two years later, he admits that there isn't a drug he, I could name that he hasn't tried. How did it ever come to this? A much-loved primary school teacher who taught me is spotted with adult pornography on his computer at school over 20 years ago and never reported by the boy who saw it. He was arrested three years ago in possession of 7,500 child exportation images. How did it ever come to this? Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. That's the devastating assessment of Proverbs 25 verse 28 to each of those true stories. Each person in those stories was like an ancient city with a broken wall, vulnerable to invasion, ready for destruction. And Proverbs 4 verse 23 puts the opposite like this. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do blows from it. Well, as we finish our series in the fruit of the Spirit, one of my prayers this weekend in preparing for this morning is that I might leave you today seeing self-control not as a burden to feel guilty about, but rather as one of the greatest blessings promised to us through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, who lives in every single Christian here. And so my aim is that I want to leave you encouraged and prayerful and hopeful that your fight for holiness and self-control in your life is not in vain and it is not a lost cause. In fact, it's quite the opposite. 
And if you're not a Christian, welcome. I want you to know that at the moment you are missing out on something that is wonderful. The presence of God in your life and without Jesus, you will never be able to fully be who you were made to be. You're taking notes this morning, three points. Number one, what is self-control? Number two, why do we need self-control? And number three, how do we get self-control? Let me pray for us. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would remind us this morning from it who we are in Christ We pray that you renew us for faith-filled warfare and bring forth in us the fruit of self-control that pleases you. By your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is self-control? Put quite simply, it's where you control your desires rather than your desires controlling you. And here's a positive, concrete example of self-control in the Bible. Joseph in Genesis. And uh, we're going to look at Joseph's story in more detail next term. But think about one aspect of self-control and integrity and even faithfulness that we see. In Genesis 39, when Joseph is serving in Egypt in Potiphar's household, we're told... Now Joseph was well built and handsome and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and, and said... Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Joseph is a wonderful, positive example of what self-control is. He models saying no to sexual temptation. Why? Because he's not willing to sin against his God. And in large part, it's his awareness of God's presence in his life that helps him to say no to resist temptation, to flee. What about the flip side? A negative concrete example in the Bible of lacking self-control. And it's hard to go past David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. 
Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. David's lack of self-control led him down a destructive path. Adultery, deception, cover-up, planned murder. How did it ever come to this? Eventually, the undoing of his own household. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And maybe you can relate to a battle with sexual temptation too. But self-control does not only relate to sexual faithfulness, although it is a big area of self-control. Self-control also relates to showing restraint to other desires and impulses in our life too. For example, self-control relates to how we control our words. Listen to what James says about our tongues. When we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us, we turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself on fire by hell. Well, how about you? Does your tongue ever get you into trouble? Do you struggle in the area of gossip? Are you quick to complain or criticize? Do you find it difficult to tell the truth? Self-control relates as well to how we control our time. Positively, Ephesians 5 verse 16 says, speaks of redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. But negatively, a lack of self-control leads a person to be lazy with their time. Think of the sluggard in Proverbs. Self-control relates as well to how we control our anger. Proverbs 29 verse 22, an angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. What's your temper like? Is there anyone you are quick to hate in your mind? Are you passive-aggressive in how you show it? Self-control relates as well to the appetites in our life too, like how much we eat, how much we drink, or what substance we consume. One Christian writer describes the battle for self-control as a battle against one more. And self-control will impact a whole lot of other areas in our life too. But I want you just to pause just for a moment and consider where do you think honestly you personally need to grow in self-control most in your life at the moment? Is there one area you struggle with to show restraint in? What is that area? Write it down if you need to. Think it out. Where does the walls need rebuilding in your life? Because self-control isn't optional for a Christian and yet we all struggle in different ways. So take a note in your mind or write it down, and we'll come back to it later. 
Well, the final thing to say about self-control in this first section is that it's also a gift from the Holy Spirit himself. As we've heard earlier, it is a piece of the singular fruit that he's committed to producing in us and it is a side of the diamond holiness that he is fashioning us day by day more to be like Christ. And self-control is a power that the Spirit gives us. Christ's people to say no to our wrong desires and yes to what God wants for us. Well, if that's firstly what self-control is, being in control of our desires rather than our desires controlling us, then secondly, why do we need self-control? Have a look, if you've still got your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 9, at the end of that passage we read a little earlier, or was read to us. Let me read it again from verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others... I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Well, one reason we need self-control, according to Paul, is because the Christian life is a race and a fight. Firstly, it's like a serious athlete training for a race who goes into strict training, more literally strict trainings translated, who exercises self-control in all things. A few years ago, Jess and I went on a strict training regime to run the Sydney Morning Herald half marathon team version together. And it involved months of training in advance. We both found out that there's a lot of discipline goes into a long distance race. And I remember it was the day of the race and we were at the, I was at the changeover zone. Jess ran the first leg of the race. And I was waiting, there was a time where, you know, the faster runners came through and I was sort of waiting, where, where's Jess up to? Not quite sure what pace she would run. And uh, I got to a point where I was waiting, waiting, got a little nervous, a little more nervous, and uh, decided to just make a quick dash to one of the nearby portaloos. And I won't say too much more about what happened there, but... Uh, I'll be restrained. A few minutes later, though, I emerged from my final preparation and there was my wife, two or three hundred metres away, in the changeover zone, very agitated and upset with one of the race officials trying to search for her nowhere-to-be-seen husband. And I tell you, there was no prize for me that day. I might as well have been disqualified by the look that I got when I finally made it to the changeover zone for that leg of the race. And what's the takeaway? Don't run like that. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Exercise self-control in everything. Paul is saying, be like a strictly trained athlete who turns up ready, is prepared in their eating, their readiness, their rest, their endurance, their planning. Why? Because the race of faith is the one we're running. 
And it's not just the race for the crown in this life or that race. It's a race for a crown that is eternal. A race that involves discipline and dedication and holy sweat. I love this quote from Don Carson. He speaks about the modern Christian and holy sweat. At least that's my words. People do not drift towards holiness apart from grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. I want you to ask yourself this question today, just honestly, privately to yourself. Am I honestly running towards holiness at the moment, or is drifting a better word to describe my direction at the moment? Every true Christian runs a race that requires serious self-discipline and self-control. Elsewhere, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. But notice one reason why we need self-control back in that 1 Corinthians 9 passage is also because the Christian life is a fight. Look how strong Paul's language is at the end in verse 27. Like a boxer who strikes a blow to his own body. And a point Paul is making here isn't about the body being bad or evil. God made our bodies. Christ was resurrected in a body. We have a great hope for a bodily resurrection too. No, Paul's making a point about the seriousness of exercising control over his body rather than his own body and desires and impulses and appetites having control of him. Why? For the sake of advancing the gospel. Why does self-control matter to Paul? Because he doesn't want his body to disqualify himself from finishing the race safe, faithfully. Paul's in a body that belongs to Christ and not to sin. And if you're, in a, if you're a Christian, you are in a body that belongs to Christ as well. And Jesus was serious about that point as well in the Gospels. Don't let your eye lead you into sin. Don't let your hand lead you into sin. It'd be better to lose one part of your body to enter the kingdom than to be disqualified for your whole body and to be thrown into hell. Why does self-control matter? Because if you're a Christian, God the Holy Spirit dwells in you right now. That means your body is a temple for His Spirit. And Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Well, we've thought about what self-control is, and we've considered just a few reasons why self-control is important. And finally... How do we get self-control? 
Now, I said at the beginning that one of my aims this morning was that you might leave today seeing self-control not as a burden to feel guilty about, but rather as one of the greatest blessings promised to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think that one of the very keys to seeing the fruit of self-control as a great blessing rather than a great burden is by remembering that very question that I began with. How did it ever come to this? And in its most positive sense, to reflect on that question about the new life that you share with Christ. And fundamentally, that is just a coming back to the gospel of God's grace that is not about a list of do's and don'ts that we don't stack up to. And yes, every Christian is running a race and is fighting an active fight of faith And that is an active thing and not just a let go and let God thing, not a passive thing. But please hear this point. Christian self-control rests finally not on ourselves, not on our self-effort to attain it, but as a great blessing of the Holy Spirit's promised work in us from God. And why? Because it is a gift to be received, which was purchased at unimaginable self-crossed at the cross. The way to grow in self-control is to remind ourselves who you are. I spent the past week thinking about self-control and all of the ways that I haven't and don't measure up in self-control. And we're to remind ourselves of who we are and who our Saviour is. Without Christ and apart from Him, your life and my life would be no different to a city with broken walls spiritually miserable, vulnerable to invasion, ready and just a matter of time for destruction. Think about it. You would be dead in your sin. The promise, therefore, there is now no condemnation would not apply to you. Were it not for Jesus' perfect obedience and self-control, even unto death on a cross, you would be enslaved to this world unaware of a knowledge of God, unaware of who you truly are under slavery to sin. Were it not for your redemption through his precious blood, the forgiveness of sins would not apply to you. You would not be adopted into God's family and given every spiritual blessing in Christ. You would still be under the condemnation of the devil, a child of his, if Christ had not been raised in power according to the spirit of holiness By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And guess what? That same spirit of holiness who raised Jesus from the dead, he is the one living in you too. He is the one whose ministry is to remind you and I of God's forgiving grace, to remind you and I of God's transformative grace, to help you and I to see that whatever setbacks or discouragements in the area of self-control in your life, in my life, it has good news. News that is of paid sin. News that is of forgiven sin. News that speaks of the God who's taken as far as the east is from from the west. That's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. How do we respond to a gospel of grace like that? Thankfulness and honesty. 1 John 1, 9 
says, confess your sins. Why? Because he knows already. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you're serious about wanting God's help, he's transforming grace in the area of your life that you thought of earlier. Ask Jesus to help you by his Holy Spirit who lives in you to help you in a way that you have struggled with in the past, but for a breakthrough. And then engage actively in a battle against that sin. I love what a Christian counselor and writer, Ed Welch, says about this point. He says, as the Hebrews were promised the land, but had to take it by force one town at a time, so we are promised the gift of self-control, and yet we take it by force. And his point is, get on with being serious about waging war with sin and moving towards holiness. Do it by involving others. Do it by going and seeking more immediate and urgent help if that's required. Do it by making a change in your life, not in your own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit who lives in you. That's painful, perhaps, radical and costly. And in chatting to someone yesterday, I thought about a few people who have done that, who just model and illustrate different ways of expressing a response to that grace. Like the guy I knew at uni a few years ago, who continued to, despite all of the inconvenience, hold on to a dumb phone because he knew he struggled with pornography on a smart one. Or the close friend we meet up with very regularly, who fasted from shopping for a year because she knew that she was addicted to online shopping. Or the ministry mentor who uh, would meet up with me regularly and shared, not as a legalism, but just as a pattern of what he has found helpful. No no brekkie, no Bible, no brekkie. And his point was, if I don't feed on the spiritual nourishment of the Word of God first, what good is the physical stuff? Or the Bible college lecturer who shared with us in third or fourth year that he made a deliberate decision to be a teetotaler. And he did so to model to a younger generation and those he went to church with that you do not need alcohol to be social. Or the guy I know who gets home from work and he's committed to his wife and kids that that's when work ends. When I'm at the office, I'll work. And when I come home, I'll stop. And I share these, uh, not least because they were convicting to me in different ways as well, but not to be new laws, but as illustrations of men and women responding to grace, not working for their salvation, but working out their salvation. And I challenge you and I, let us be as fervent and eager and zealous for holiness in our life too, now that we belong to Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we do praise and give you thanks for your work in our lives, for the redemption that we have in Christ, for the precious blood that he paid to ransom us. And we pray like the Apostle Paul, help us to forget what is behind and strain toward what is ahead, to press on toward the goal to win the prize for which you have called us heavenward. And let us do so looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Now, a really helpful thing uh, to do after we've heard uh, God's word preached to us is to spend some time in quiet reflection. Uh, So we're going to have an opportunity to do that now for you to reflect, uh, to maybe pray in the quietness of your own heart. Uh, And the QR code will also be there uh, so that if you have a comment or a question, uh, you'll be able to respond in that way. Uh, So just spend a moment uh, in quiet reflection.